And I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News. Well, Christian Blood, i got to ask you. Mm-hmm. Have, I know you're a busy man. I know you're the news director, the afternoon anchor. You're covering all the bases. Have you had any chance to check out this testimony this afternoon? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is the best TV I've seen in a long time. If this was a, if this was a streaming service, I'd subscribe. (laughs) You'd pay. But is it better than uh, what was the trial? uh, I guess a year and a half ago, it was um, uh, what's his name, Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and Amber Heard, Uh, Johnny Depp. Yeah, for me, it's better because I I care more about all this. Yeah, I I never, I could never figure out why I was supposed to care about uh, Johnny Depp and Amber and. But, uh, you know, you, you can't do better than star witness shows up unexpected, mm-hmm. w- bursts into the courtroom. If she'd kicked the door in, it wouldn't have been more, like, dramatic, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. She comes down that aisle. She's just, like, I've had it. I, I, this is, I'm angry. She throws those papers down, these I want to see these in front of me. I mean, the judge is afraid. Her and Ashley Merchant, the uh, the Trump team attorney, just like like a death match, really. Right? Do you, do you ever watch on YouTube? There's a couple of channels. There's a body language experts. You ever watch those? I've seen some of that. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not an expert at this, but I'm really fascinated because a lot of times you can tell by body posture oh, sure. and yeah. or tone of voice. Yeah. Whether or not, and, and, and have you listened to some of the sound bites? Because I've heard quite a few, and it sounds to me, and it doesn't mean anything, but it sounds to me a lot like Fonnie Willis. Her voice is cracking. She is mm. upset, Jack. Mm. <laughs> she is not happy with this. I, yeah, I hear that too, and I guess there's a lot of ways you could you could read that because I also think, and we'll, we'll get into this in a second, but. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is a strategy here where she may want to sound upset mm-hmm. because she's decided that this is so inappropriate and invasive that they're talking about her personal life. That's the that's the tack she's taken. Like, I can't believe we're talking about this. So if you were making that or taking that tack, you would have to sound kind of shook up. You couldn't sound cool about it because you're... You know, you're rocked by it. She, she's like, I cannot believe that you're asking me this and asking me that, and you're asking me to emasculate a black man. And don't you know that as a black woman, I keep cash in my house. We all do. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, I mean, it was just like, obviously she knew she was going to do this, but it was, it's, it's been quite a performance. Or have they not. already done the, have they already done the Oscars this year? Uh, I, I want to get a nomination uh, in. I, I'm just going to leave you with this real quickly. Or. <laughs> In addition to what you were just suggesting, or she's really put off yeah. because she thought that there was no way that this could all come forward. She's right. quite inconvenienced. Right. She's offended, right. too. I just you know, want to toss that in there. She is, she's highly offended. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's highly offended that we're talking about her doing her job. All right. Well, let's get into this, you and I. And we're going to start with this, and we've got a lot of things we'll get to here. Uh, phone lines are open at 210-599-5555. The question on the JR poll, do you think, if you've seen this today or seen any of it, do you think she's hurting or helping her case against Donald Trump? Remember, she's the she's the person prosecuting the election case in Georgia Against Donald Trump. She's the district attorney of Fulton County. 
The challenge on her, brought by one of the co-defendants in the case, is that she has a conflict of interest. And the conflict of interest is that when she became DA, and she just testified to this a little while ago, when she became DA, which I think was 2020, she found the office to be like behind in its work, and so she hired a bunch of contract lawyers to supplement the existing staff, which she said was too small. So to do a lot of catch-up and fix the, the department and so forth, she brought these lawyers. Well, she hired a firm of three lawyers, one of whom in the firm was Nathan Wade, and she says that they were friends, had been friends before, remained friends during and subsequent. But the challenge to her is, as I understand it, um, under the county contract, she was paying him to do this work on the Trump case and for her office. Then the two of them being in a romantic relationship, and it's not clear, at at some point in there he gets a divorce. I'm not, we're going to kind of set that aside. Being in a romantic relationship, they were taking these trips. Well, she has said he paid for the trips, but she gave him cash for the trips. She didn't give him checks. There's no paper trail. Uh, So basically, the allegation is that she benefited from making him a special prosecutor to work on the Trump case. He then took her on vacations using funds earned from his position, and then she gave him cash. Uh, And she can't prove it or... uh, you know, what have you, because she is a black woman. I'm just telling you what she said. And she, like other black women, was taught by her father to always keep a lot of money, several months' worth of cash on hand. So she says she had at times anywhere from several thousand to um, maybe fifteen or $20,000 in her home or wherever she was staying at the time. She would take it with her from place to place, and she would just pull from that the cash she gave him. Therefore, there are no bank drafts, there are no checks, there's no cash app or you know any of the other uh, apps, just just cash. Uh, she talked to uh, this issue um, and basically talked about how she had piles of cash lying around. Cut number 14, listen to this. Did you pay him back for the cruise and for Aruba? Yeah, I gave him his money before we ever went on that trip. You gave him cash before you ever went on the trip? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when you got cash to pay him back on these trips, would you go to the ATM? No, lady. You would not go to the ATM? No. Okay. So um, Fulton County pays you direct deposit, I assume? Yes. Fulton okay. County and the uh, state of Georgia both pay me direct deposits. Okay. So the cash that you would pay him, you wouldn't get it out of the bank? I have money in my house. You have money in your house. So it was just money that was there? When you meet my father... He's going to tell you as a woman, you should always have, which I don't have, so let's don't tell him that. You should have at least six months in cash at your house at all times. Now, I don't know why this old black man feels like that, but he does. When we were growing up, my daddy had three safes in the house. So my father's bought me a lockbox, and I always keep cash in the house. Now, I don't do it to the degree that my father would do it, so he would probably be uh, ashamed with me. But I always have cash at the house. That has been 
I don't know, all my life. If you're a woman and you go on a date with a man, you better have $200 in your pocket. So if that man acts up, you can go where you want to go. So I keep cash in my house. And I don't keep See, cash. She turned everything in into like a story. And oh, it's, it's, it's I, I feel sorry for you if you missed it. It's fantastic. It's, uh, it, it's, it's like, uh, there's part, she's, part of it's she's defensive. Part of it, she's giving young women advice. Part of it's about, uh, being a black lawyer. Uh, it's all, it's all kinds of stuff. It's, and she'd always, when she'd get into an area she didn't want to talk about or they kind of had her cornered, she'd spin off all these anecdotes and extra, um, like extra fact. They had to keep pulling her back and going, okay, that's not what we asked you. That's very interesting. That has nothing to do with what we just asked you. Um, and earlier, Nathan Wade, the boyfriend, uh, and contract lawyer, uh, gave testimony that was not, not great. Uh, he was very sweaty and shaky up there on the on the stand. Because remember, they got caught saying that their relationship started fairly recently, and now it's been established, and they've admitted that it's it started long before the Trump case and long before he was a contract uh, lawyer. Uh, here's how he explains paying for their vacations. Cut number ten. Um. You said in the affidavit that you roughly shared travel, though, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So this roughly sharing travel, you're saying she reimbursed you? She did. And where did you deposit the money she reimbursed you? It was cash. She didn't She didn't give me any checks. So she paid you cash for her share of all these vacations? Mr. Schaefer, you'll step out if you do that again. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And so all of the vacations that she took, she paid you cash for? Yes, ma'am. And you purchased all of these vacations on your business credit card, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And you included those in deductions on your taxes, correct? No, ma'am. No, you no. did not. Whoops. Okay. There's someone at the from the IRS waiting for you. Um, I I don't know. I mean, tell me, tell me, because I don't do this. I don't I don't handle all kinds of things like this in cash. Do you, have you ever heard of this? Does this sound right to you? Because I'll tell you how it sounds to me, and it may just be me. But it sounds to me like you're using cash so that you, no one can ever trace or track what you're doing. It sounds to me like it would be way more convenient. I, I, I mean, I don't use Cash App a lot, but that's a convenient way to pay a friend or share an expense with a friend or reimburse somebody if they buy something for you because you couldn't go get it. Um, and certainly, um, I, I, I do not have the experience in my life of ever having that much cash at the house or, uh, or giving somebody hundreds or thousands of dollars in cash. Is that, maybe you think, and I, I can understand this. Hey, Jack, it's, uh, it's better. I don't like, uh, credit cards. I don't like banks knowing what I'm doing. Okay. But it sounds like in this case, it's nefarious. It sounds like people who know they're under the, the microscope as, government employees are being shady um he's asked if he knows where she got the cash cut number 11 listen to this you know the source of the cash J just that out of her pocketbook yes you don't know where she obtained the cash i, I didn't ask her and the whole time that you she was paying you in cash you never said hey why do you have this amount of cash why would Mr. Mr. Sadow, in my practice, people come into my law firm 
all the time with cash. I never question where they got it. Yeah, but we're talking not about mm. people that come into your law firm. We're talking about the district attorney of Fulton County, who I'm assuming receives a paycheck. I mean, I'm sorry, but see, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. He did it. She also did a lot of it where they would say, well, you know, a lot of times uh, it's uh, sunny out while it's also raining. And like, no, 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 no. She's not somebody walking into the office. Uh, I need to hire a lawyer and here's some cash. I just think political figures, public figures who are already doing something they're trying to hide and hush up, really two things they're trying to hide. So they have the conflict of interest over the contract, and they have the personal relationship, and I'm not that interested in it, but it's it's inappropriate, right, for the position they're in. Um, it sounds to me like the cash thing is just a, a cover-up. Now, the other testimony today came from this woman that's been friends with uh, Fannie Willis for a long time, her name is Yertle or Yurley or something like that. Yurdy. Uh, and she worked in the office and they were friends and she's the one that, that turned and gave testimony, um, to explain that the relationship goes back further than either, uh, Willis or Wade had ever admitted. And earlier, uh, this was how the attorney for the Trump team, Ashley Merchant, set up that testimony, cut number three. And if you want me to proffer what I anticipate, she's going to say, I talked to her last night. She's going to say that there was a personal relationship that began in October of 2019. She's going to testify to that. And she has personal direct knowledge of that. It's not hearsay and it's not privilege. She's going to take the stand. She's terrified, but she's going to take the stand and tell the truth. And then I plan on calling Mr. Wade because at that point I can overcome their motion to quash and bring Mr. Wade, bring him to come. Then I can go through privilege issues with him, and then I can have Mr. Bradley testify. And we won't have to have an objection to every single question I ask Mr. Bradley. An objection to hearsay, an objection to privilege. So that's how I plan on presenting the evidence, because it makes the most sense. And I think I'll be able to overcome any privilege objections. We can talk about that when Mr. Wade takes the stand. Mm. So the timeline is they're having a relationship, Wade and Willis, in middle of 2018. She's DA in 2020. Uh, Trump loses the 2020 election. They decide to prosecute him for uh, his conduct uh, and uh, attempting to influence in Georgia. That's 2021. And again, probably thinking that um, this case would be about Donald Trump. It will be. I mean, the case doesn't go away. Even if something happens to Fannie Willis or she's disqualified or she's impeached or she resigns, the case against Trump doesn't go away. But... It obviously, in in the public's mind, it, it reinforces the idea that the, the people pursuing this are conflicted, crooked, uh, possibly not up to the task. Um, but again, to be clear, and I think our legal experts, when we talk to them, will agree with this: Trump still has 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 charges, and there will be a case uh, brought by this office, even if it's not, uh, you know, brought by her. So the Trump-Rico case changed permanently, or I, I would say somewhere uh, mid-afternoon today. I think it was around 2 o'clock. Um, and I've been out and about uh, a little bit. And um, we got word that Fannie Willis, the Fulton County DA, who'd been subpoenaed because of the accusation that she had this conflict of interest with her boyfriend, um, was actually going to was going to testify she she had tried to quash 
or object to the subpoena from Ashley Merchant, and she basically storms into the courtroom, and uh, you know it was it was it seemed like almost a dramatic entrance. She paused while the courtroom could catch its breath and gasp, and the cameras could swivel over to her, and then she ran up there and and uh, gave her testimony. And I mean, look, this is a lawyer on the witness stand. So they know, they should know, and they, they do know uh, what to do and what not to do. Um, but I also felt like at times she was taping a campaign commercial, like, you know, the, the, the outrage and the calling the other lawyer a liar and complaining to the judge and tossing papers down on the desk in disgust. Um, fingers are pointing all over the place. And I, it, it just seemed like it seemed very theatrical. So I think... I think this is not only an attempt to save her RICO case, but it's probably also, I wouldn't be surprised if this is video that, that shows up in the next, um, you know, political ad that Miss Willis runs in Georgia. Remember that Fannie Willis is on the Kamala Harris career track. She is an African American attorney who has been a, um, judge and a prosecutor of the biggest county in um, Georgia, just as Kamala Harris in California was a prosecutor and the DA of, I think, Oakland County, and then the Attorney General of California, and then the United States Senator from California. Well, Georgia is now pretty much a purple state. It's got two Democratic senators. It's pro- It has right now probably its last uh, white male governor that it's going to have for a while in Brian Kemp. Uh, he's in his second term. So there, there was already interest in Fannie Willis moving up and running for statewide office or running for Congress or running for the, the Senate if a Senate seat opens. And um, you got to factor in how she's defending herself. She's not only defending herself in the RICO case, she's trying to make sure that her trajectory, uh, you know, continues. Um, is she hurting or helping? Uh the prosecution of Trump. Now, you may already have decided what you think and how you feel about the Trump case. And you don't need any any help from her. <laughs> but I, I have to think, um, you know, there's no jury in that room. It's just the judge. I, I have to think she's hurting herself. I, I what, As we talked about with Christian, whether she is really rattled or whether she is putting on a... Um, act of distress and uh outrage and uh this is racist and so forth i it just it it to me it's not i've seen some good acting and i don't think this is good acting um it also it, it also um it, it's an incredibly stupid position to be in i mean you've got the you've got the contract given to a friend not supposed to do that. He is questionably qualified to carry out the work that she's contracted with county money to, to have him do. You then layer on the relationship they already had, which is another conflict. Then you take these trips. And again, I'm, not, I'm least interested in the personal part. Like, he's getting a lot of heat today because he 
fudged about the end of his marriage. It, 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 the divorce was in a particular year, but the marriage was over before that. That that does happen, and I'm not I'm not interested in that. That's personal, but um, their relationship is obviously something they kept secret. And the thing with the cash, they've they've got you. You know, they've got you. It doesn't look right. It's not what people do anymore. And to then say, well, this is because I'm a black woman. It reminded me of, do you remember when we talked about, who was the senator from New Jersey, Don? Was it Menendez? Bob Menendez? Wasn't he the guy that had gold bars in his closet? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, he had the gold bars, right? Remember when they caught him and they said, you've got envelopes of cash falling out of coat pockets and there's gold bars on the floor of your closet underneath dirty laundry and his his defense was well i'm cuban i mean how stupid do they think you are right i'm we, we this is what we do so question on the jr poll helping or hurting uh, and again, if you've seen some of it, if you've seen any of it, uh, your thoughts on that, we're going to kick it around. 210-599-5555. We now know the identity of the woman who died in the Kansas City Chiefs parade shooting. We also know a little more about the guy who tackled one of the alleged shooters. We're going to talk about that. And then why is a Republican in Congress claiming that the Russians have nuclear satellite weapons that could take down our military communications? The answer may seem like it's right in front of our face. The uh, testimony of Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, the big story today. Joining us now in the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line is uh, legal analyst for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Rosie Mannins. Ms. Mannins, thank you for making time for us on what I know must be a busy day for you. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Help us understand what went into or what you understand went into uh, the DA coming into that courtroom today and giving testimony when she had been fighting that subpoena, and it didn't seem like they were expecting her to show up. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise to us. Um, She actually wasn't in the courtroom for the morning. The hearing began early this morning, and... Um, She wasn't in the courtroom and then right after um, her special prosecutor who she's alleged to have been in an affair with or who, you know, she's admitted to having been um, in a relationship with, right after his testimony finished, she turned up in court and um, just as, you know, the lawyers in the case were arguing whether or not she should have to give testimony, um, she kind of just overruled everything and, and said, hey, judge, I'm here. I'm, I'm ready to go. Let's do it. This is the man that she spoke about at the church about a month ago when she gave that that talk that became a big news story. Uh, it was a, uh, a, a an AME church. I think it was in Atlanta. And she was saying, in essence, he's been singled out for scrutiny and criticism because he's a black man, but really he's qualified to do this work. Um, how, how much damage do you think was done today to that assertion she made a month ago 
given the way they brought out the, the conflicts of interest, the cash payments, etc.? Well, I guess, you know, not, I guess a lot of his qualifications to do the work were not part of today's hearing. So that aspect of it wasn't really addressed and hasn't, um, you know, she hasn't been sort of found to have, have been inflating or embellishing his his resume. Um, but I, I think what really, um, you know, there were a couple of references to what she said in court, uh, what she did in the church. Uh, a couple of times that was brought up today during the hearing. Uh, the judge actually didn't allow anyone to be questioned about that. Um, but you know, you could tell that defence counsel wanted to highlight the fact that she had so-called played the race card or she had believed that other people were playing the race card by singling out um, Nathan Wade, who uh, she hired as one of her special prosecutors on the case. Mm. Um, you know, I think what a lot of today went to was um, was not so much about race, and like I said, the judge did not want the questioning to go down that that path. Um, he was very deliberate about shutting down any questions that sort of related to what Fanny Willis had said in the church. Um, you know, a lot of it more went to, okay, now they've come out and said, since she spoke at the church, they've admitted that they were in a romantic relationship and they've said that there's nothing wrong with that. And so a lot of today went to trying to get um, anything that hinted that there was some kind of uh, financial benefit that she gained out of, of having employed him and being in a relationship with him. Um, and also a lot of today was trying to fish out whether or not their relationship, their romantic relationship began uh, before she hired him. Uh, they mm. have said emphatically that, that it didn't, and one witness today who was a former friend of the district attorneys testified that the relationship mm. had started earlier. And it seemed like getting that woman to testify then catalyzed uh, Wade, the, the testimony or the questioning of Wade. A lot of people I read today, Ms. Mannon, seem to think that she came into the courtroom because she didn't think Nathan Wade's testimony was effective or that it was shaky. What was your read of the way he came across? I mean, I thought that he, um, you know, he came across as confident. He didn't seem to be afraid of any of the questions. Um, I don't know how um, she viewed his testimony. Obviously, it's it's a sensitive topic when you've got someone you used to be in a relationship with talking about that relationship and you're not in the room or talking about it yourself. Um, we don't, I mean, we don't know whether she actually heard what he testified to. Um, there's a rule that witnesses in, in the case shouldn't be hearing each other's testimony. And like I said, she wasn't in the court. When she mm -hmm. came into the court, she said that she'd been in her office pacing up and down, knowing that he was testifying, mm. and that as soon as she got word that his testimony had ended, she came into the courtroom thinking, I'm going to be the next witness called. 
Um, we certainly got the impression watching her, especially early on in her testimony, that she wanted her voice out there. She wanted to tell her side of things. She said a couple of times, I want to be here. I, you know, she seemed to be very defiant. She um, didn't want anyone telling anything, you know, or, or sort of perpetuating anything about her that she didn't think to be true and she certainly wanted to set the record straight and and that's how she came out she kind of came out swinging she was like hey i'm here i'm i'm ready to give you my my perspective it was very very riveting uh television to be sure um quick final question um this is a rico case uh it's a big case against trump and some other defendants what happens to it in the event that um, something happens to the standing of Fannie Willis as DA or if she is in some way disqualified or disqualifies herself or is impeached, or uh, what, what happens to the case? Well, I think that's a little bit of what's unknown at this stage. Um, some of the defendants have called that she should be disqualified, that Nathan Wade should be disqualified. Others have gone so far to say that her entire office should be disqualified um you know if it was just her and or nathan wade personally you know in theory you could assume that her office through someone else was able to continue with the case and that i don't know how that would work if a district attorney's office was was on a case that they weren't allowed to be in part of um Certainly the judge said okay we're disqualifying the entire office i think that would be a serious derailment of the case i you know i don't know how any other jurisdiction would be able to pick it up um one of the things that she has said throughout this entire case is um i have jurisdiction over this because the acts actually happened in my county and so i don't know if it's a simple uh, matter of passing it off to another county's district attorney um, because then I, I think there would be arguments that they do not have jurisdiction to oversee these allegations. So um, we're certainly waiting to see, you know, the extent of any disqualification, if there will be any. And then obviously that raises that important question of, well, does the case just die um, or is, is it somehow able to be carried through? Well, we appreciate your insights on this. Uh, Rosie Manon's legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thank you for coming on with us today. appreciate that. Thank you. All right, it's 446 on San Antonio's News Talk Station, 550 and 1071 KTSA. Jack Riccardi, uh, you can join the show at 210-599-5555. Yesterday, we were talking about the uh, the shooting at the parade in Kansas City. Here is a man who says that... He saw, chased, and tackled one of the people he and others around him believed to be a parade shooter. Cut number four. One guy was hollering, saying, you know, stop him, or catch him, you know, tackle him, whatever. And he's just, just bailing, running. And out of nowhere, I heard that guy hollering, so I'm just like, okay, well, I'm right here. And I just, I didn't even think about it. I just... A reaction. I didn't hesitate. It was just, just do it. So I went to go tackle him, and another gentleman did the same thing. And as I'm tackling him, I see his weapon either fall out of his hand 
or out of a sleeve because he was wearing a long jacket or like a Carhartt. So when I seen that hit the ground, I'm like, oh, you know, we got to take this guy down. And so, like I said, I did and another good Samaritan did and we held him down. And it seemed like forever, but it probably wasn't. It was like 30 seconds holding him down and me and the other gentleman are hollering at ongoers, you know, where's the cops? We're, you know, get the cops over here, get the cops over here. You know, we got them. Wow. Uh, I hope the guy wasn't a Michael Jackson impersonator because uh, then you're in big trouble, buddy. No, I look, this is, this is good stuff. This is hopeful stuff. There's so many negatives that we talk about. Um, th- this is what we celebrate. This is what we need. This is something we will have more of if we don't treat people like we're treating Daniel Penny in New York City. This is what we can have more of if we don't, uh, you know, brainwash boys about toxic masculinity. We need more men like this because a civilized society needs people like this. It doesn't work with just, well, wait for the cops or somebody call the cops or let's all video this so there's a video record of it. Uh, sooner or later, you need a to- toxic masculinity guy, and nobody calls it that on a day like this. When something like this happens, all the people with those phrases and terms all seem to disappear. We, we need it. We need more of it. Good for him. Um, of, of course, our, our thoughts are with the lady who lost her life. She turns out to be a local Tejano radio DJ uh, in Kansas City. Her name is Lisa Lopez Galvan. Uh, she hosted a radio show on KKFI. She was at the parade with her um, family members, including her adult son, and she lost her life in that shooting. Well, if you were a sports fan today, you had to suffer through some terrible takes on sports radio and sports TV about the Kansas City Chiefs parade shooting. Because these people may know their mock drafts and their, you know, spring training start updates. They may... they. They may know what the 49ers need to do to win a Super Bowl, but when it comes to the shooting in Kansas City, all these sports talk experts and retired athletes were saying, we need more laws. How dare we not have more laws? We need a new law. We're failing our children. We're failing ourselves. Uh, When are we going to do it? When are we going to have the laws? When are we going to realize there's a gun problem in our country? Said Rich Eisen from NFL Network. You know, it's funny how people can call for new laws and never say what the laws would be. It's funny how people can say someone ought to do something, but never really have an idea of what the something is. We should pass laws. Well, what laws? What? I'm not asking you to write a law, but give me like the thumbnail sketch. The people that did this violated existing laws. I bet you anything we'll find out they had a rap sheet or rap sheets. If they're motivated enough to commit murder or serious injury, they're going to violate lesser laws. They're going to violate process laws and paperwork requirements. The parade was a horrific crime. But there's such an avoidance of 
the biggest issue right in front of us, which is the responsibility of the shooters themselves and, and, and the bigger question of what is happening, what is going on in our society. Because if we want people to do the right thing, but we never want to say there is a right thing, guess what? We're not, we're not going to get it. You can't have relativism on everything, and then when something tragic and horrible happens, suddenly you become a moral absolutist. You can't, you can't do it. You can't switch back and forth. Unless you're a sports talk host today. And we had the story yesterday, kind of sweeping up the loose ends here. We had the story yesterday from, this was a senior member of Congress, Mike Turner, the chairman of, uh, I think, the House uh, Intelligence Committee. And he came out with a statement that there was this serious national security threat uh, that Biden needed to declassify and the public needed to know about. And it, it, it emerged over the course of the afternoon and evening that there is apparently a school of thought in the U.S. intelligence community that Russia has space-based weapons that could um, threaten America's satellite networks, and it could threaten everything from our military to uh, our you know, civilian communications and cyber business and, and what have you. And uh, I don't know if you remember Mick Mulvaney. Mick Mulvaney was Trump's budget director. He had been in Congress for a long time, and he was kind of a wonk guy in Congress. He is saying that he thinks the reason that uh, Mike Turner came out and said this, uh, because it's a very serious thing to say, and it's also a very serious thing to reveal if you've been told you know, in confidentiality, he says he thinks he did it, to um, enable and spur the passage of more aid to Ukraine. And I'm sure you didn't fall out of your chair with surprise when I said that. Now, this is where we are in Ukraine now. We're, we're now at the point where I think there are people, and I don't know if Mike Turner's one of them, but I now think there are people that would tell you just about anything they would they would scare you with just about anything to get that Ukraine money. And the more they do that, the more they cry wolf, of course, the less likely people are to take it seriously, to take Russia seriously, and, and also to question whether or not Russia is even, as we talked about yesterday, the country we should be most worried about, which it isn't. So we're going to talk about that. So you know who Adam Kinzinger is, right? Yep. Former Republican congressman. Yep. He jumped on the um, the Russian space weapons story on twitter he said uh, we need to have a discussion u.s space access is reliant on elon musk who shows an open affection for russia and is actively working against ukrainian victory so he's he's tied it into elon musk um and then tom massey the uh libertarian congressman uh tweets Hey, numbskull, for nearly a decade before SpaceX made domestic U.S. space travel possible, the only way to get American astronauts to the space station was rides on Russian rockets. <laughs> Which Whoops. is true. Yeah. Can you say stepped in it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I mean, it, all you need is just, you just need the Google, Adam. <laughs> just, you just, you <laughs> yeah, need the Google. Really, get really. that Google. 
My mother uh, says, all right. Uh, 510 on KTSA, Jack Riccardi. Um, uh, coming up uh, later in the hour, uh, we're going back to 1983. We've got our top 10 Thursday. Uh, we've got Nico LaHood, the former Bear County DA, going to weigh in on the events uh, of today. And there's so much to talk about. I mean, I, it, you know, there's so many different directions uh, that we could go in here. But, you know, um, Trump's reacting, as you know, to the the Fonnie Willis testimony, and he's saying she's a scam and her and her boyfriend were making money off this and the case should be, you know, dismissed and it should go away. And, of course, he's also, uh, he had a, uh, a judge today in New York set the date for his uh, New York trial. So that's going to happen next month. I think it's March 20-something. And then, of course, there'll be more testimony in the uh, Fulton County, Georgia, uh, RICO case tomorrow. But it was quite a day today. But another story um, that involves Trump that's been in the news this week is this revelation that the U.S. intelligence community, and specifically... Um, Brennan, John Brennan, who was Obama's CIA director, um, asked the intelligence agencies of our allies, these are the so-called Five Eyes countries, UK, Canada, Australia, etc., to um, surveil people associated with Trump, about 20 of them, and to look for phrases and, uh, you know, search for phrases in communications and, and in stuff that they were vacuuming up from uh, telecom, you know, so phrases that would be connected to uh, Trump and Trump associates and so forth. And again, this is in 2016, so leading up to the 2016 election. So it's not only our government treating our fellow Americans like they're the enemy, but it's asking other countries, governments, to do it, to participate in it. This would be a grand crusade. This would be a grand alliance if you asked these countries and if these countries worked together in concert against a common foreign foe, you know, the Axis powers in World War II or the evil empire in Reagan's words. These are... These are you and me. And this is where I think, and I want to get your thoughts on this, this is where I think Donald Trump often misses one of the best points he could possibly make. Because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but mistrust of Big Brother is a universal thing. It cuts across all kinds of lines. That's why, for example, somebody like Edward Snowden is an international cause. If Donald Trump would constantly hammer the point that this is not about me, this is about anybody and they they will go after anybody. You are vulnerable. She's vulnerable. He's vulnerable. People that are with me are vulnerable. People that are not with me are vulnerable. He's got to make this about us versus them in a way bigger, broader-based way than he's ever done. 
not only will that be politically advantageous, because I know he's trying to win an election that I believe is coming up soon, but this is just a, this is the most resonating thing I think he can say. That when you look at the, um, the story about the intelligence agencies, I, I realize the headlines make it seem like they just thought this up or dreamed this up in order to get Trump. But clearly what this really shows us is they feel empowered to decide. To, they're, they're refereeing the entire universe. They can decide who, who's in and who's out, who's kosher and who's not. Um, they're just, they're just picking phrases and key, you know, keywords and, and there's no end to that. There's now, now, it is very dangerous to take on those forces. But he's already their enemy. He, he has already come to their attention, if you will. So he's not raising his head above the parapet to say this stuff. And as I was reading it last night, I just thought that somebody has got to get to him. I wish I had five minutes, you know. Have you ever, have you ever thought that? What would we like to get, like, five minutes with Trump? What would you say to him? Like, you're on an elevator or something. If I could get to him, this is the first thing I'd bring up. Um, this has the potential to reach so many more Americans than just the people that might vote for you. It has the potential to reach people that will never vote for you. It has the potential to reach people in other countries. It's very, This is a very big deal. And it's really one of the stories that's going to go under the radar, I think, uh, in the days ahead. Anyway. News today on two legal fronts for former President Donald Trump in New York. A judge set the hush money trial date for March 25th. Uh, Trump's attorneys had uh, blasted the decision to go forward with the case or to set it there at the same time that he's trying to uh, contend for the Republican nomination for president. And today we had very dramatic testimony from, among other people, the Fulton County, Georgia DA, Fannie Willis, who is prosecuting a RICO case against uh, former President Trump and others, here to join us to talk about that on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line, former Bear County District Attorney and now Attorney in Private Practice, Nico LaHood. Great to have you back with us. Good afternoon. Hey, Jack. Good afternoon. So I've always uh, found you to be really respectful of your your counterparts, your colleagues, uh, as prosecutors, we've we've had you on so many times to talk about different cases around the country, and you're you're always careful not to uh, Monday morning quarterback to respect that you know you and I weren't in the room, et cetera. From what you were able to glean or see bits of in terms of this courtroom in Georgia today. Um, how damaging do you think the the testimony and the facts that were brought out might be to Fannie Willis's RICO case? Well, I, I don't know if it I, we can say that it directly affects the evidence that she may or may not have against the RICO case, but it sure hurts her credibility and 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 the appearance of an impropriety, and then whether she herself is facing any type of either ethics violations or or maybe even some people mm-hmm. have contemplated criminal violations there on whether she should have reported this or not reported that or what was going on or how her and, and Mr. Wade were, were acting and what they did and what their motive was on distributing money. So um, I, I, I kind of separate those two. I separate mm-hmm. the evidence going forward because two things can be true at the same time. 
theoretically, she could have strong evidence against President Trump. I'm not saying she does, by the way. I'm just saying she could. And then she could also be in her own situation, either ethically or legally, on what she did or didn't do with Mr. Wade. That's a fair point. What What do you think might happen to a case like this? I mean, there's really never been a case like this, but what typically in a district attorney's office would happen to a case uh, if the DA was, for example, disqualified from it? Would it just be picked up by uh, another person in that office? Would it be assigned to a special prosecutor who was not part of that office or maybe both? Or So in, in Texas, it would be both. So a special prosecutor in Texas, at least, is a prosecutor that comes in for a specific special reason that works under the elected DA. So the authority is still under the umbrella of the elected DA. They're not removed from the case. If a DA is removed from the case or there's some type of recusal or some removal, of, which is this happening, which is a, potentially could happen here, then in Texas we would call it an attorney pro temp. A substitute person would come in, usually somebody from a surrounding county or another district attorney's office or some state agency would come in to prosecute the case. They would have full prosecutorial discretion to analyze the evidence, to make decisions on the case, to dismiss, not dismiss, move forward, offer plea bargains. The person that is removed, the DA, Ms. Willis, would not have anything to do with that case from that point forward if that happens. It, it seems as though, it just bare bones, um, she says she took over as the new DA, found that the office was behind in its work and understaffed, used a provision where you could bring in contract lawyers, says she brought in a lot of them, of which uh, Mr. Uh, Wade was just one of them, uh, to catch up, to get things back on track. Um, But just the whole way that you would hire somebody who you were at, at the very least friends with, if not more, the whole business of taking trips together, giving him cash, and having no um accounting for the transfers of money i mean it the the nicest thing i think you could say about that is it's an incredibly careless way of conducting yourself in a very public position is it not well absolutely well my pop there's something my pop it doesn't pass the smell test right it just stinks i mean you have someone that comes in as a special prosecutor on a rico case who's never been a prosecutor minus you know less never been a a rico prosecutor because you can be a prosecutor for intox manslaughter, you can be a prosecutor for capital murders, and you can specialize in both or family violence cases. So just because you've been a quote-unquote prosecutor doesn't mean that you have an expertise in a certain area or law that you're prosecuting. This guy's never been being a prosecutor. Okay. And then from what I read, because I didn't get to see it, is I understand that her, I guess one of her friends or closest friends testified that they started this relationship before, mm-hmm. but they both claimed they did not. And the whole paying cash, I mean, she's saying that she has six months' worth of money in cash at her house. I get that's an old school move, and, and, and I understand that that's responsible, but I mean, I don't know when she's replenishing it. I mean, I guess we're going to see withdrawals from her accounts. I mean, all this has to play out. I, I can't see, I don't know how, what kind of questioning she was under. I have a lot of questions reading some of those things. From what it sounded like, I saw some of Mr. Wade's testimony. I didn't see hers. It sounded like she didn't do herself any favors today. She sounds very argumentative and combative. She sounded, at least it read, very defensive mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and very incredulous and she didn't sound very credible but again I, i'm going to go back and watch it uh, at, at some point but it didn't sound like she did herself any favors today yeah i mean i i don't know how i don't know what view the law takes of 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 cash but um in this modern day and age and i'm not i'm not 
being disrespectful of people that prefer to pay in cash or deal in cash. I know people like that. But given what they were doing, to do it exclusively in cash, I, I can't think of any other interpretation for that than you didn't want a record. You know, I mean, well, that's and, also and how bribes get paid a lot of the times, right? Because you you certainly can't write a check to a senator that says bribe in the memo line. So it's cash. The problem, I didn't mean to cut you off, Jack. You're right. See, the, the deal is what, what everybody else likes to do in cash, and I know some, some people that are that way too, she's not just any other person. She's an elected official that has disclosure obligations, and she has finance reports that she has to do. So she doesn't have the luxury of saying, I just keep, you know, 15000 or 500 or whatever she keeps at home, and I'm paying 2500 here and there, and I'm paying them off in cash for quote-unquote security reasons or whatever the, the excuse that he said, the part that I saw of his testimony. It just looks terrible. It looks bad. So you're right about that. Now, I don't know what ethic violation she may or may not have committed in Georgia. Georgia's standards are maybe a little bit different than Texas, but she has a, a duty to disclose all cash transactions and all benefits that she may or may not receive from somebody because they want to know if that person is exacting any improper influence over that person. So a, a public official, it may not be illegal or, or even unethical to take a, a favor or whatever, but you have to disclose it. There's disclosure obligations. So it just it just really looked bad, and he had no no documents of it. It's just basically because I said so, at least from his testimony, the mm-hmm. portion that I saw. It didn't sound like she had a very different uh, tune. As you And you just kind of anticipated my, my next question. I mean, we don't know if they broke a law or they broke the smell test. But if they just broke the smell test, if this just looks fishy and smells fishy and makes them look kind of shifty, um, what might that mean when you, when we get to the actual RICO trial? Like, what would that mean to a judge or jury? To a judge, it wouldn't mean anything if he didn't remove her from the case. To a jury, it may mean everything because of credibility. So there's two different things. The judge is going to be making a decision once the testimony is, is done and, and everybody closes on whether whatever standard he's using rose to the level where she needs to be removed from the case. They're making some pretty strong claims here. Now, whether it comes to a jury, it's a credibility issue. If you lose credibility with a jury, whether you're a defense counsel or a prosecutor, that hurts your, the trust. It hurts what you're advocating for mm-hmm. and ultimately the verdict. So I think it's a big deal to a jury. We'll know whether it's a big deal to the judge here so shortly. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, RICO cases are complicated and it would seem to me, again, I, you know better than I do, but it seemed to me like if I'm a prosecutor and I'm bringing a RICO case, credibility is even more important because I'm going to have to walk the jury through a number of steps. It is not a, not that there's ever a simple case, but it's certainly not as simple as most other cases. They're not because you're having to put an organization together and people working in concert together to further a crime, to further some some allegation that's being made. So, so it, 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 it's corruption, they're claiming. It's organization. It, it's racketeering. Think of a mafia trial, right? So there's mm-hmm. those are RICO cases that we can think of. So they're, they're putting that case together. So absolutely credibility because you're not going to – an evidence is not always as – I mean, a trial is not always as clean as you want it to be. So you absolutely want a jury to trust you. You want the mm-hmm. jury on close calls to, to defer to the advocate. Now, that's not evidence. The, ju- the judge will tell you what an advocate says is not evidence, but there's no trial lawyer, experienced trial lawyer, that will tell you that it doesn't benefit you for mm-hmm. a jury to trust you. So that's why credibility comes into play when yeah. you're in trial. Former Bear County DA and now attorney Nico LaHood. 
Great to have you back with us. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Jack. Have a blessed night. You as well. God bless your family. It is now time. Music. Top 10 board. We'll start with number 10. We're back in the year 1983, 41 years ago this week. It was the Cold War, and the U.S. and the USSR staged competing nuclear tests within days of each other. At the Golden Globes, E.T. was the big winner. Washington Redskins won Super Bowl 17. Carol Yarborough had just won the Daytona 500 for the third time in his career. And here are the top 10 songs from this week in 1983. At number 10, it's Phil Collins having his first big solo hit, saying he wanted to duplicate the 60s sound of a Motown classic. Here's Phil Collins and You Can't Hurry Love. Phil said in an interview that it was hard to duplicate that 60s sound because recording studios in the 80s were so much more sophisticated. But I think he pulled it off. This, of course, was a big global number one hit for the Supremes in the summertime of 66. And number 10, this week in 83 for Phil Collins. And number 9, this is Duran Duran's set opening hit at last weekend's Phoenix Open Golf Tournament. This week it's at number 9 on the charts. Hungry like the wolf. Big hit moving up 10 spots this week to number nine and bolstered by its heavy airplay on MTV, Duran Duran and Hungry Like the Wolf. We find Boy George at number eight, and these days we find Boy George on Broadway. He is playing the Empresario in Moulin Rouge, his first stage acting work in 20 years. Here's Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? A big hit from their platinum debut album, Kissing to be Clever. It's Culture Club, and Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Which takes us up to the song at number seven this week, and it would be the 12th biggest song of the year. It's one of the sweetest duets, I think, probably ever. The late Eddie Rabbit and Crystal Gale, you and I. We'll build the dreams we chose. We'll be all right. Just you and I. 
Eddie Rabbit and Crystal Gale, song that went to the top of the country music charts, You and I, at number seven this week. Now, the song at number six has a narrator who is describing a woman who claims that he is the father of her newborn son, which he denies, and I'm sure you've already figured out, this is Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. Michael used to say that this song was inspired by groupies that would follow around his older brothers in the Jackson 5, but Michael's biographer says that Billie Jean was inspired by threatening letters Michael himself received in 1981 from a woman who claimed that he was the father of one of her two twins. And yes, I can't explain that either, but uh, you uh, this, this week you find Billie Jean moving up from number three, number 23 to number six. The top ten from this week in 1983. Let's move along now to the song at number five, whose lyrics were inspired by watching a late-night travel documentary. It's, of course, Africa and Toto. song got a nice boost when the band Weezer covered it a few years ago. Toto's Africa is holding on at number five this week in 1983 as we pass the midway point. And the song at number four, Hearing Problems and the Pandemic. Both kept Brian Setzer and the Stray Cats off the road for a few years, but that's all changing. First, though, here's Stray Cat Strut at number four. Brian Setzer's Rockabilly Riot Tour comes to the Paramount Theater in Austin on March 5th and the Tobin Center here in SA on March 6th. And this week they had the fourth biggest hit with Stray Cats Strut, The Stray Cats. Now the song at number three this week is a cover of a Rodney Kroll song that was recorded in 1981 and covered by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band for their 82 album, The Distance. And it's my favorite Seeger song, Shame on the Moon. Some men go slow. Some men go just where they want. Some men never go. Shame on 
Now, in an interview at the time, Seeger said he thought of it as a Western song or a cowboy song and wasn't going to put it on the album because the distance was supposed to be a real rock album. But then they thought, we need a couple of mid-tempo songs on there, so let's throw it on the album and see what happens. The record label people were very excited. They said, that's the single from this album this week. Up one to number three, Shame on the Moon, Bob Seeger, and the Silver Bullet Band. The song at number two this week is uh, part of a phenomenon of an Australian band making waves, scoring hits like the layers of a blooming onion appetizer. Here's Men at Work and Down Under. It was last week's number one song, and this week it drops down to number two, Down Under and the band Men at Work. That brings us to a new number one song for this week in 1983. Number one. The number one song this week in 1983 was a love ballad from Patty Austin's album, Every Home Should Have One. It's her duet with James Ingram, written by Rod Temperton, formerly of Heatwave. First released in 82, it was not a big hit. Re-released in 83 after showing up on the General Hospital soap opera. Here's Baby Come to Me. James Ingram backing vocals by Michael McDonald, the second of two Quincy Jones produced hits this week, with Billie Jean being the other one. A great song, a great set of songs. All ten of these are winners this week in 1983. Hey, I saw this. I don't know if you heard this or not. The inventor of Pop-Tarts has passed away. You don't really think of Pop-Tarts as having an inventor. Seems like something that these, you know, big food outfits, these big food companies would have just sort of come up with maybe by committee or whatever. Kind of was that way. But anyway, his, his name was um, Bill Post, and he died a few days ago at the age of 96. He led the team that invented Pop-Tarts while working for the Keebler Company at their Grand Rapids, Michigan plant in 1963. So he was a plant executive. He was given the job uh, of developing, on behalf of Kellogg, the big cereal company, uh, a new breakfast food that could be made in the toaster. And they developed something that they called fruit scones, 
but that eventually was dubbed Pop-Tarts. Bill Post had an amazing life. As I mentioned, he lived to be 96. He uh, grew up in Grand Rapids, uh, the children of Dutch Im- a child of uh, Dutch immigrants, and went to work as a very, very young man and served in occupied Japan with the Army Air Corps after World War II and began working in the food industry in his uh, native state of Michigan. He always gave credit to his team for the invention of Pop-Tarts, uh, saying it was never just one person's uh, work. In his retired years, he would visit classrooms around the country and tell kids the Pop-Tart story. And their favorite part of his presentation was when he would give everybody free Pop-Tarts. Family says Bill Post was a humble man who had a servant's heart that seemed to overflow with generosity. And um, he is being fondly remembered on Twitter. Uh, people are saying things like he went out in a glaze of glory. <laughs> Somebody, somebody offered this. I love this. I know this is not right. You're going to be mad at me, but I love it. Somebody offered tarts and prayers. I, I can't tell you how much I love that. I wish I'd thought of that. I'd have said it if I thought of it. Uh, one guy said, um, the perfect service for him would be if, uh, his, uh, casket popped up four minutes, uh, into the graveside service. Um, yeah, like they put him in the ground, he pops right back up again. I don't know. I mean, he, I, I feel like he would, from what I'm reading, I feel like he would get that. Like he would probably enjoy some, sure you know, some Pop Tart humor. You know, he sure sounds like a guy that could laugh a little bit. I mean, if you invented Pop Tart, look, this isn't like you invented penicillin, okay? This isn't like you invented, uh, the artificial heart. I mean, you gotta have some fun with it. It's, it's Pop Tarts. You know what I mean? I was, re- I was reading part of the story last night about, uh, yeah. the invention of this. And at the time when he brought it up to management, you know, and I, I can picture these stodgy, yeah, serious men, you know, sitting around this board meeting. They could not wrap their heads around this idea that he was bringing it to the board. Well, if you think about it, imagine if there had never been Pop Tarts and all of a sudden somebody handed you this thing. I mean, it is, it's, it's very unorthodox, right? You know, it's, it's, Guys like the Henry Ford of breakfast food. I mean, come on, let's face it. This is a this is a revolution. And and then Pop Tarts sort of makes possible all the other kind of easy but junk food things that we know, right? Like toaster strudel wouldn't have that without Pop Tarts. And you know, um, so the man is this is unheralded greatness right here. And this is the kind of thing that only America invents. No one else, no other country could have, could have given the world the Pop Tart. I mean, let's face it, right? That's that is an American story right there. Child of immigrants, hardworking, served his country, invented something called fruit scones. Of course, we should also give credit to whoever changed the name from fruit scones to Pop-Tarts. Pop-Tarts is a great brand name. I mean, that's somebody earned their paycheck right there with that. That's catchy and memorable and easy to remember and uh they started out with just a few flavors and now they have countless flavors remember he they had the giant edible pop tart um mascot at one of the college football games so bill post lived to see the day when a football team ate its mascot at at its bowl game gotta love that so rest in peace briefly uh before you pop up bill post this week very busy very fast-paced lot going on and it's been coming at us fast, so it's made the week go by quickly. If you if you're into that sort of thing, excited about the weekend, it's right upon us. Um, we're going to take a little breather from all this heavy duty 
news uh, here in a few minutes. But I want to kind of recap or catch you up on the big story today, which was the testimony in Fulton County, Georgia, of the DA down there, Fonnie Willis. Now, just to back up, you will remember that this is where they are putting Donald Trump and several other people associated with him on trial in a complicated RICO case uh, about um, attempting in a organized crime fashion to alter the outcome and pressure the outcome of the Georgia presidential election in 2020. So the, the initial thought we all had was that this would be about whether Fannie Willis could construct and lead a jury through, as you heard Nico LaHood say last hour, the very complex uh, machinery of a RICO case. You're basically saying there was an organized, concerted, uh, multiple-person, multiple-level effort well, now it's become, because of a, a challenge from one of the co-defendants, now it's become a question of, we- of whether uh, Fannie Willis uh, is herself in violation of uh, ethics and maybe even the law. And the allegation is that when she became DA, she hired a guy, uh, she actually hired a number of, of outside attorneys to work on contracts, she says she needed to because her predecessor had left a, a mess behind. But one of the men she hired is Nathan Wade. And she's been saying that her relationship with Nathan Wade was friends subsequent to him coming to work for the district attorney's office. But now it looks like they were more than friends, and that began before he came to the DA's office, in fact, before she came to be the district attorney. So she took the uh, the uh, witness stand today, kind of unexpectedly. She had been subpoenaed, but she had been fighting her subpoena. He testified in the morning, as did a friend of hers, that said, yeah, I saw them kissing and hugging in the office, and I can attest that it was a romantic relationship, and it began sooner than she says. She comes into the courtroom mid-afternoon, gets on the witness stand, and uh, is extremely defiant, combative, seems very rattled by the the testimony that uh, Nathan Wade and her former friend had given, saying at one point, it's not me who's on trial, cut number 12, during the time period that you were dating, would your security team ever take you two together anywhere? No. Never. If there was a lunch that occurred that I just described, if there was a meal that I occurred that I just described, anything outside of that, and it needs to be very clear, not often, once, twice, because I want to be uh, over-inclusive, I'm saying once or twice. I'm not certain that it happened, but I'd rather be over-inclusive with you. So your office objected to us getting um, Delta records for flights that you may have taken with Mr. Wade. Well, no, 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 look. I object to you getting records. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. So my question was... You have any problem? I object to getting any personal records of mine. We're not dealing with privilege through a witness. And I'm not, no, 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 no I'm not dealing with privilege. What um, we had offered to put them in camera for the court to review, and I just want to know if she has any That's problem. That's something to do with a witness. 
Okay. Um, you have to file as part of your job something called an income and financial disclosure. So anyway, disclosure you know, it, it, it became this kind of complicated cat and mouse uh, back and forth testimony. Uh, she was uh, explaining that, uh, yeah, she took trips with this guy, Nathan Wade, and uh, they went and had caviar and champagne in California, and they went to Aruba, but it was okay because they had his mother with them. And it was weird because she's paying him this contract uh, money from the county to do outside work for her office. So she's hired a friend, given him a sweetheart contract, then they're sweethearts where they're taking trips and he's putting the trips on his credit card because you you buy travel on a credit card right but everything else they do is cash and he is taking cash reimbursement from her so the tickets are on his credit card meaning there's nothing with fanny willis's name on it to document that she was on these uh little getaways with with wade but then both of them say when they would be on these trips, she would just give him $500, $400, $2,500 to reimburse him for uh, the travel. So it kind of looks like the two of them were taking trips on the county contract money, and then she was giving him cash. She claims she was giving him cash. Of course, there's no way to trace the cash. There were numerous questions asked about, well, where did you get the cash? Well, I get paid. Okay, but did you withdraw it from the bank? Are there, are there withdrawal records or, or would we see withdrawals on your account? No, no, I just keep a lot of cash at my house. I was thinking as I listened to this today, you could really get away with anything, right? If you could convince, and, but except of course you couldn't, but if you could convince the authorities that oh, I didn't do anything wrong, and whatever I did, I just did with cash, and of course, there's no record of that. And I'm a cash guy. You, you know this about me. I, I I believe we need to hang on to cash. I don't want to see a cashless uh, society. But I'm talking about like when you buy a hamburger, or you know, not not for, for crying out loud. This is ridiculous. I mean, who's going to believe this? Well, maybe somebody will. I don't know. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting today uh, was just the smugness, just the the confidence that she could get away with this. And I was thinking, in a weird way, don't take this wrong, but in a weird way, I blame Trump because, no, just hear me out, just hear me out. The, the Trump derangement syndrome thing that we talk about, one of the symptoms of Trump derangement syndrome is it seems to imbue its victims with kind of false beliefs about their abilities. They like they think they can jump off buildings and fly, and you know what I mean? Like, wh- how did she think she was going to get away with conducting herself in a public office like this? And And what makes her think that she can sit there on that witness stand, be very combative and argumentative and play the race card and insult the, the attorneys questioning her. She told Ashley Merchant, the attorney for the guy that uh, brought the charge, Michael Roman, she told her, don't get cute with me. Can you imagine if I was on a witness stand and I said to a female lawyer, don't get cute with me? So Trump derangement syndrome, which of course is Trump's fault, 
seems to imbue its victims with this sort of nobody can touch us, rules are not for us, we can get away with anything. In a perfect world, that would seriously undercut Fannie Willis's ability, I think, to lead a jury through the multiple complicated steps you would need to lead them through in a RICO case. Like, I'm a true crime buff, and I like to read about the mafia and how the prosecutors and the FBI and so forth go after mafia, and it's complicated. you got to have a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of witnesses. There's snitches. There's wiretaps. There's a lot of... To prove a racket is complicated. And you got to be on top of your game legally. And I think you have to be somebody that's sort of either a good storyteller or uh, very credible in the sense that you can say to the jury without really saying it, hey, I know you're not going to follow every detail or I know this is really a lot to keep track of, but just stick with me, trust me, and I will get you to the conclusion of this. I will show you how all the pieces connect up. That's a That's a RICO case. Well, you wonder how could Fannie Willis absent a very biased jury, how could she now be that person? And by the way, she intended from the start to personally try this case. She's the DA, but she's not farming it out to her, you know, first assistant or something like that. So anyway, that's kind of where we uh, left it uh, tonight. Um Wade seemed like not a very good witness. He was sweaty. He was kind of shaky. Um, he, he and, and, uh, Fannie Willis both had a very hard time remembering like when their relationship started, uh, when it ended. It's almost like they had Biden-esque memory, you know, <laughs> just, I don't know about you, but just speaking as a guy, and she even said at one point, well, you know how guys are. Speaking as a guy, I, I think I always know when a relationship begins and ends. Uh, we're like very aware of that. Like that's very concrete to us. And it doesn't fade from the memory. If it's an important relationship, it doesn't fade from your memory, uh, anytime soon or maybe never at all. But, uh, we'll talk about that. What were your impressions? We're asking you on the JR poll. Do you think she helped or hurt, uh, her case, her Rico case with her testimony? Don't forget the dish tomorrow in our 6 o'clock hour. We'll be talking restaurants you can praise or zing your most recent restaurant experience. Um, does the name Fred Smith ring a bell? It almost sounds like a made-up name, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're traveling incognito. Now, Fred Smith was the founder of FedEx and is still the emeritus chairman of that company. He's in his 80s now. He did an interview with uh, Fox News Channel's Brett Baer that I wanted to highlight a couple of things from because I thought it was really, really interesting. You know, Fred Smith's not a, a sexy guy. He's not a celebrity. Uh, you don't see him uh, twerking at the Super Bowl. But he knows how things work. He built one of the most successful and iconic American companies in history, a company that on its first night of operation transported 180 packages and now on a typical night, uh, transports millions. In the interview, he explained to Brett how the world has worked 
how the economy of the world has worked and how important the United States has been to it since World War II. Cut number six. We're uh, the wealthiest nation in the world because of all these wonderful inventions since the end of World War II. But we're also prosperous because we led the world in opening markets for trade and protected those trade flows with the American military and our alliances. And then third, and probably equally important, we're the reserve currency of the world. The dollar is the medium of exchange, and our financial institutions control the movement of money around the world. So as we've talked about on this show before, the way the world works and to you and I, the way we're able to go into a store and buy something and pay the price we pay or order something and have it at our house the next day is basically connected to two things. The United States is the de facto enforcer of the world's shipping lanes. We don't carry everything, but we are the sort of the power behind and, and, and ensuring the security of everything that moves, however it moves, all around the planet. And then we also open markets for trade and protect that trade flow with our military. And then we have have been uh, the reserve currency of the world for the longest time. And one of the great untold stories going on right now is an attempt by the so-called BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, to replace the dollar as the reserve currency. And this was really Fred Smith's, uh, you know, warning shot. People need to know what it would mean uh, were that to happen. Cut number seven. You know, you had a speech uh, in December, Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. You said this, to avoid a catastrophic fiscal crisis, I fervently hope that next year our political process produces leaders who recognize the extreme and unprecedented dangers we face in terms of our political and financial instability, not to mention military challenges around the world, which require a grand compromise and resolution of these problems. I mean, are you seeing those leaders as of today, Fred? No, quite the contrary. The political process is really focused on the extremes of both parties. No one is uh, supporting trade, which made America great, really, since uh, Roosevelt and his Secretary of State Hull passed the first uh, major trading bill in 1934. And then we led opening the world and restored Germany and Japan, our enemies, to prosperity through trade and the American alliance system. And then on top of that, our financial capabilities to print money at will is dependent on the dollar remaining the reserve currency. And the so-called BRICS alliance, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, have set out on a deliberate course to dethrone the dollar. If that happens and we can't sell our bonds, I can assure you the living standards that we all enjoy today are going to be a thing of the past. You know, I was thinking as I was listening to his interview with Brett Baer that Fred Smith is trying to get political leaders, such as President Biden, to realize this. But in order for that to ever happen, and I don't have any hope about Biden, you actually have to get people to recognize this. Yeah, People have to understand how things work now, how impactful it would be if they stopped working this way. And that would be the only kind of, I think, pressure 
guilt trip, whatever you want to call it, that you could put on politicians. Uh, Given, of course, we know that politicians are bought and paid for, but we also know they respond. They don't, they don't like pressure. They don't like to be in a hot kitchen. Um, if we don't have people that understand how our economy works, they will not put the kind of pressure on our politicians that we need to put, and they won't elect the politicians who get this. Um, and that, in turn, made me think about a conversation we had on this show. I forget when it was. I think we did this a year or more ago. But I want to ask a question that we asked once before and and open it up to your calls. Who are the five most important people alive today? So we're not talking about historical figures. Uh, I'm not talking about your, your spouse or your kids. Or I, I, I'll give you that. We know they're important. Who are the five most important people alive in the world, in the country today? Who would you put on that list? You get five. They have to be living people. You know, I think uh, when you see somebody or hear somebody like Fred Smith, you realize there are people in our country that really do things, make things happen, make the wheels turn, but they're not they're not household names. And then you look at who the household names are, and we're not too happy about that, right? So I'm going to ask you for five names. The five most important people alive today. They... Not counting your wife, your husband, your son, just, you know what I mean. We'll, we'll give you those, but not counting those, besides those. And, cause I don't want some guy calling in and trying to make up for the fact that he, he forgot about Valentine's Day yesterday. My wife is the most important person. No, not doing that. Um, they have to be alive. They can be Americans. They can be international. You can put them on the list for positive reasons, or you can put them on the list because you're, you think they're scary and dangerous. Top five most important people alive today, 210-599-5555, or jack at ktsa.com, jack at ktsa.com. David Nubronfel says, Trump, Musk, Obama, Soros, and Bezos. Sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? Like they walk into a bar. All right. Uh, Marshall is on the radio. Marshall, top five most important uh, people alive today. The most important person right now on this planet is, is Joe Biden's personal physician. He's the only one keeping us away from it, from Kamala right now. Okay, Biden's doctor. Who else? Biden's doctor, uh, President Trump, Boris Yeltsin, uh, Jerome Powell, who was in charge of the Fed, and my favorite, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. Now, Boris Yeltsin, is he still alive? Oh, I'm sorry. I meant... Um, Vladimir Putin, I'm sorry. Putin, okay, okay. So Biden's doctor, Trump, Putin, um, Jerome Powell, and what was the fifth one again? Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, all right. That is a strong... only one out there telling us the truth. That is a strong list. I like that, Marshall. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Uh, 210-599-5555. Top five most important people alive today. I'm going to go with... Uh, Elon Musk at number one. There are just so many. I think he's going to be on every list, uh, even people that don't like him. There's 
there's so many areas in which he is uh, involved and influential. Um, and the guy is sort of, he's concentrating on the stuff we need to concentrate on. So Elon Musk, my second choice, because I think about him a lot, and I think about how much we're not going to appreciate him until he's gone, um, is Clarence Thomas. Now, whether you think about it just in terms of the makeup of the Supreme Court or the intellectual leadership of the the judiciary in this country, Clarence Thomas is, is incredibly important. But also, when I look at what he goes through, like just the other day I read in Newsweek an essay um, entitled Clarence Thomas is not a black hero, he's an enemy of black people. It was written by a, uh, a radio talk show host, commentator, Amisha Cross, and she was saying that during Black History Month when we record and recall the achievements of black Americans, Clarence Thomas does not deserve that mention and that legacy, that he is a betrayal of, not a portrayal of black greatness, uh, that he's not been held accountable, that he has worked against the interests of black Americans. Uh, he has kept people who look like him from voting, she wrote. And uh, so she thought he... And see, because he has to weather all that, that makes me admire him even more. Um, we will greatly miss and mourn Clarence Thomas when that day comes, and I hope it doesn't come anytime soon. Uh, third on my list, so first Elon Musk, second Clarence Thomas. Third on my list would be Donald Trump. Um, he has a lot of faults. He has a lot of, he does a lot of stuff I can't stand. But I have to say, and we're now, you know, eight years into this experiment of Trump as a national political leader. He, he still is a lone voice in the wilderness on a lot of issues. And he still has a, somebody that's in communications. He has an incredible gift for connecting with people. You cannot take that away from him. You can hate him, you can disagree with him, but there's a lot of people who don't trust any political figure in this country, but they do trust him. And that's despite the best efforts to malign and obviously smear him. Fourth, I would say, is Rand Paul. He's not a hugely influential senator. He's probably one of the least influential senators in the Senate. But isn't it often the case you hear Rand Paul say something and it is just so spot on? He is a rarity, and that's why he's number four on my list. And then I threw in, I, I think my fifth name could have been a lot of different people. I had a lot of different choices uh, for five. I threw on Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, okay? Now, not because I love his movies, but the guy is a, is a cultural force. He's a political force. He's uh, a major uh, kind of entrepreneur now with this UFL um, I just, I think he kind of reminds me of like a, um, like the JV Elon Musk. He's a, he's a good communicator. He's very, very, um, persuasive and articulate on a variety of subjects. Uh, people just kind of gravitate toward him. You know, they, they, they listen to what he says. They hear him out. Um, I think he's made good use of his fame. You know, a lot of people are famous in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but, Dwayne Johnson seems to do things with his fame that are constructive, from what I've been able to tell. So that would be my fifth. Who are the five most important people alive today? 
599-5555. I'm looking at the email. We're getting a lot of mentions of uh, Rand Paul, and Ron Paul is getting mentioned as well. Uh, we've had a few people mention Putin. Um, Trump is on some lists. Who would be on your list? Five names, five most important people alive today. 210-599-5555. And, yes, you can put people on there for negative reasons. You can put them on there because you you think we have to be concerned about them. You don't admire them. You fear them or you worry about them. 100% said Fannie Willis hurt, not helped her case on the JR poll powered by River City Oral Surgery. We'll have a new question tomorrow uh, bright and early at 4 in the afternoon live. Or you can always find the Jack Riccardi Show at KTSA.com. You can always find the poll there, too. And... Uh, Our on-demand podcasts are available in all the other places you like to get your favorite podcasts. So, Don, what were your, uh, who were your five most important people? Yeah, I thought I'd play along. I mean, the obvious two that seems, seems to be on most everyone's list is Musk and, uh, Trump. I put Richard Branson on my list. That's interesting. You know, I mean, you can't, it's hard to argue his, you know, sense of invention. Um, Mm. Warren Buffett. Is another one that mm-hmm. I put on the list. Mm-hmm. I know that's not, you know, everyone's, he's not everyone's cup of tea, but you can't argue his business sense. People listen. Yeah. Yes, they do. And, uh, and I thought I'd throw Paul McCartney in the mix. I don't know if anyone thought about that, but mm. I, because of who he is, what he has brought into the entertainment world. And I, he, I think he's one of the last of, uh, of that type of musician that, uh, you know, has, has, uh, brought so much into uh, that business basically as far as uh, uh writing his own music uh and the entertainment field i just i just think uh he's he's the last of that breed i think that's a good list that's a strong list yeah i like that um it'll be interesting to see and by the way all the names that people are mentioning you're mentioning i'm mentioning are kind of people that have been around right for a while It'd be interesting to see if this year generates someone or promotes someone to this status. Like somebody we're not thinking of today here in February, but if we were to ask this question again in December, um, I wonder if there's a, like, you know, will somebody be much more important to us at the, at the end of this year than they are right now? Um, I was curious to see if anybody would say Bill Maher only because he's shaken things up. You know, he's, he's, he's reaching across in the way that Joe Rogan is. He's reaching across lines. He's getting people to reconsider. I'm, I'm always fascinated. It's one thing to, you know, preach to the choir. It's one thing to talk to people that already more or less see it your way. And that's valuable. But when people can get other people to, reconsider rethink that's also pretty uh powerful uh stuff um who knows by the end of this year kamala harris may be one of the most important people (laughs) on our list um here's what she said about frederick Douglass in honor of black history month kamala harris vice president cut number five i think of course about the great frederick Douglass. And all that meant in terms of um, him having an extraordinary ability to articulate um, the truths. And often when one articulates the truths, one has to also point out the hypocrisies. 
um, with hopefully a way that is about motivating us to reconcile and do better. What? It's like she, I think she forgot who Frederick Douglass is. She's like, in, in her mind, she's like, um, abolitionist leader or second baseman for the Baltimore Orioles. I can't. She reminds me of when I was in college, you'd get like a test question and you just blank on it. You know, remember those blue book tests? And you just start writing. They tell you, just start writing and hopefully the answer comes to you. So you just start writing BS and scribbling it, you know, till hopefully you, that it, it never quite happens. There's an impersonator. Uh, I love this woman's impersonation of Kamala Harris, cut number eight. Things Kamala Harris can't say unless I say them for her part, infinity. <laughs> we all know that I am so far in over my head and that I don't know what I'm doing at all, at all, in any capacity. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I don't know. you're doing an impression of Kamala Harris, Don, it's almost like you're doing Christopher Walken, isn't it? There's like a lot of hesitation and yes, like weird emphasis of syllables, but then you, mm-hmm. the Christopher Walken doesn't giggle. So. No, but you have to have that laugh down almost perfectly. Yeah. Though, you yeah. Know, otherwise, That's it, how you know it's her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so you never know. The, the names may change. The order of the names or new names. There may be new names on this list. By the end of the year. Like, for example, I think you could argue if he, if he does it right, the running mate that Donald Trump picks, that could be an extremely important name in our future. So, um, well, as we, uh, counted down the top 10 hits from 1983 earlier, I want to leave you tonight with, uh, one more time, the number one song from this week in 1983. As we mentioned, it was, Patty Austin and James Ingram and Baby Come to Me. Uh, we lost James Ingram um, way too young, uh, about uh, five years ago. Uh, this is a, a man who uh, sang and wrote songs and produced records and had two number one hits, the, the duet with Patty Austin um, and a great song in 1990 called I Don't Have the Heart. Uh, he recorded with Linda Ronstad somewhere out there for the uh, Disney movie An American Tale. He did a, a trio with Kenny Rogers and Kim Carnes on a song called What About Me in 1984. Did a duet with uh, uh, Michael McDonald uh, called Yamo Be There, won a Grammy for that. So a lot of duets um, and known for those duets. We lost him to brain cancer five years ago. Uh, but this song to me is just one of the most polished and beautiful and romantic and easy on the ears uh, songs. So we leave you tonight with the number one hit this week, back in 83, the beautiful and inimitable Patty Austin and the irreplaceable James Ingram. One more time tonight, Baby Come to Me. Chance you got to 
Keep it talking 